0: Welcome along everyone to another of Shared Ireland's podcasts. Today we'll be speaking to the North's longest serving MP. He's a former UDR soldier with the rank of corporal. He was first elected to public office in 1985 and then was the youngest person to take a seat in the Stormont Assembly at the age of 22. In 2016, he was given a knighthood. He is currently his party's chief whip. He's married with two children, was born in Kilkeel County Down it gives Shared Ireland great pleasure to welcome along the MP for Lagan Valley, Mr Geoffrey Donaldson. Welcome Geoffrey. Thank you. Geoffrey, as my introduction suggested there, you've been a busy man from a very early age. Um, Can you maybe tell us a little bit about your early years, background, family life and what shaped your political thinking maybe?
1: Well, I grew up uh, in uh, the, uh, what we call the Kingdom of Born, um living in the shadow of the Mourne Mountains. Um, I'm the oldest of eight children, uh, Presbyterian family, and um, I had a very happy childhood in the sense that uh, we were a close-knit family, part of a close-knit community. But it was a community that had its fair share of tragedy in the early years of the Troubles. I think one of my first memories of those dark and troubled years was the murder of my cousin Samuel Donaldson. He was uh, a, an RUC officer serving in Cross and South Armagh. He was the first RUC officer along with his colleague Constable Roy Miller be killed by the provisional IRA in what became known as the Troubles.
0: What year was that, Jeffrey? That was
1: on the 12th of August 1970 and I remember I was still in primary school at the time, the impact of that uh, murder on my family circle and on the local community. Sadly, Samuel wasn't the last of the family to lose his life, his brother Alex i uh, was an inspector in the Ruc and he was killed along with um, a number of colleagues uh, on a mortar in a mortar attack on yuri police station in in 1985 so um uh, those were difficult times uh, for uh, for us um but, but uh, as they were for many others and I, from an early age i took an interest in politics um, and Followed political developments in Northern Ireland, but also in the UK more generally. Um, and, you know, whilst I did all of the normal things that children do, I was involved with the Boys Brigade, would go camping regularly in the morns, walking in the morns, had a very active uh, childhood. But I would also watch programmes like Panorama mm-hmm. um, to see what was happening in the political uh, sphere. And so when, at the age of 18, I um, did two things. I followed my father into the Ulster Defence Regiment as a part-time soldier. And I joined the Young Unionist Movement and got involved for the first time actively in politics.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, If you don't mind, Jeffrey, we'll jump right in and start with probably what is the most topical subject for the past couple of weeks. Boris Johnson. Good or
1: bad for the North? And the island of Ireland as a whole do you think? Well I don't think it's fair to judge the man um, just a couple of weeks into office. Um, uh, I think that um, Boris will be what we make of him. Um, Sadly in politics too often people write off uh, leaders before they give them them a chance to do things and when I think back to some of the leaders who made major contributions to the politics of Northern Ireland, many people would have written them off um, previously. So I think we should give Boris a chance. He's a very intelligent man. He wants to be a good Prime Minister. I don't think anyone uh, enters high public office wanting to make a mess of things. I don't think anyone enters high public office wanting to do bad things. So I think he wants to be successful. I think we should give him a chance. Uh, clearly there are big challenges facing the Prime Minister at the moment, uh, Brexit being one of them, and that's not just related to the island of Ireland but obviously the UK as a whole leaving the European Union um, and all that goes with that. He came to Northern Ireland um, a few days after he became Prime Minister and made clear that one of his priorities is to see the devolved um, Assembly and Executive restored and the um, so he's made clear that that's going to be a priority for him. And I think that's something we should welcome. I think Boris Johnson is someone that the parties here can work with. But crucially, um, we have a new Secretary of State. Uh, I've known Julian Smith now for the last couple of years because he has been Government Chief Whip and I've worked very closely with him in managing uh, parliamentary business um, as two parties involved in a confidence and supply agreement in the house of commons so i got to know julian uh, julian is very fair-minded he uh, will not take sides in the sense that he will be i think balanced he wants um, and has taken on board what the prime minister has said about getting stormont back being a priority and i think julian um you know has the capacity and the ability to help the political parties here move to Um, a place where we can get agreement on restoring the institutions. Mm -hmm. So uh, overall, I would say um, we shouldn't get too fixated on whether we we think Boris Johnson will be a good Prime Minister or a bad Prime Minister. I think we should work with him and his cabinet to get the things that we need for Northern Ireland. Yeah.
0: You mentioned, uh, Jeffrey there, your confidence and supply agreement which the DUP had with Theresa May. Obviously that's something that you'll be looking to continue and obviously Boris will need your support in continuing his, um, with his Premiership. Um, I don't expect you to give us any secrets
1: but how has your negotiations been going so far? Well, our Confidence and Supply agreement is with the Conservative Party, not with the Prime Minister. So yes. um, it continues um, despite the change of, of Prime Minister. And you're right now that the government is down to an overall majority of one in the yeah. House of Commons. Those 10 DUP votes, which are included in that figure, are more important than ever. Yeah. Um, uh, we have begun initial discussions about what we call Phase 2 of the Confidence and Supply agreement because the first phase was for two years and we've now reached the end of those two years. So we're now beginning discussions with the government about the next two years uh, and what will happen there. Um, Clearly, we'll be looking at uh, Brexit and seeking to ensure that uh, the government is mindful of the needs of Northern Ireland in uh, whatever further discussions are held with Brussels. And uh, clearly, our economy is important, so we'll be looking for further investment in the Northern Ireland economy, not least to help us prepare for Brexit and to mitigate against any short term impact that Brexit might have. So, it would be fair to say that
0: your main concern in any negotiations with the Conservative Party and Boris would have the interests of your constituents and the
1: people of Northern Ireland upmost in your priorities? It certainly would, yes. And if you look at um, phase one of the confidence and supply agreement, that was certainly the case. Um, The additional monies that we secured for Northern Ireland benefited everyone, um, whether it be health, education, mental health, um, broadband uh, rollout and so on. They are for communities and people and families right across Northern Ireland. And that will be the same with phase two. We won't be changing our approach on this. And I should say, and I think this is important, that the political negotiations and the whole whole question of devolution falls outside the agreement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we did that deliberately because we did not want to be charged with somehow trying to undermine the prospects of restoring a devolved government in Northern Ireland. So the Northern Ireland office, for example, sits outside our confidence and supply agreement the discussions to restore devolution sit outside that agreement. And um, uh, so we will be focused yet again, as you say, on um, uh, ensuring that Northern Ireland's position is looked after in terms of Brexit, in terms of the economy, uh, so that we get the funding that we need um, for health and education and so on, and um, that we get the support we need um, to deal with whatever um challenges and opportunities come our way uh, with Brexit.
0: What would you say, Geoffrey, to your political opponents who maybe would suggest that because you have the confidence and supply agreement with the Tory government, that possibly um, Boris and the new Secretary of State and any Tory minister for that matter would be potentially perceived as a not- honest broker in these negotiations because of your unique relationship with them.
1: Well, you know, equally, I could um, put the charge back to, for example, the SDLP and say, well, look, the British government, the UK government are co-guarantors with the Irish government in terms of the Good Friday Agreement and the institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, You, the SDLP, have a relationship with Fianna Fáil, which is even... Uh, uh, deeper than the one we have with the Conservative Party. Our relationship with the Conservative Party is merely uh, in relation to the current parliament and them being in government. The SDLP has formed a formal relationship with Fianna Fáil. Are the SDLP saying that in the event of Fianna Fáil becoming the governing party in the Irish Republic that they could not be regarded as being honest brokers in terms of being co-guarantors of the um, agreement? Uh, equally, um, I could point to uh, other parties in Northern Ireland who have relationships with other political parties. Um, for example, if the Liberal Democrats are in the government in the UK after a general election, would that mean that a Liberal Democrat minister it couldn't be an honest broker because they are the sister party of the Alliance Party, for example? So, you know, I, 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 I think um, uh, that uh, uh, the... Um, What is being said by other parties really um, uh, we don't uh, regard as as being sensible because they have relationships with other political parties. I think that the UK government has shown that it is, um, that it does want to protect the agreement and wants to get the institutions up and running and that's one of the reasons why we kept devolution and the talks process outside of the scope of the Confidence and Supply Agreement so that it was clear that, that that is not part of the relationship between the DUP and the Conservative Party.
0: If we added in Boris Johnson speaking at the DUP party conference last year, how would that possibly change people's outlook on I suppose what you're only after? Same, isn't it?
1: Well, would it change it any more than the fact that the Taoiseach addressed the Alliance Party conference last year? I mean, you know, guys, um, uh, this is politics at the end of the day. The idea that in Northern Ireland we are in a cocoon, that we can't have relationships with other parties outside of Northern Ireland, is for the fairies, frankly. Um, and indeed, the SDLP has had is part of the wider movement of socialist parties across Europe and has relationships with many other Labour parties. It seems to have ditched its relationship with the Irish Labour Party in in favour of Fianna Fáil. Um, uh, Sinn Féin are part of a group in the European Parliament where they have relationships with other political parties. The Alliance Party has a close relationship uh, with um, the Liberal Democrats. and And the Ulster Unionist Party in the past ran joint candidates with the Conservative Party in Northern Ireland. Um, I'm minded uh, of that little verse in the Bible that says, Let he that is without sin cast the first stone. I think um, Northern Ireland is a big glass house and sometimes people should stop throwing stones. Okay, thanks for that answer. Given that Brexit
0: um, is obviously a very topical subject and that the Remain vote transcended green and orange politics here, can you perhaps outline the reasons why the DUP supported Brexit, which is the party's right, of course, and I accept that it was the UK in a whole that voted to remain or leave, but I suppose because you are the MP for Lagan Valley, um, and bringing it closer to home here, um, when was it fifty-five point eight percent of people voted to remain? Um, As I say, could you maybe outline why your strong views on leaving
1: is so important? Well, first of all, I would say that people who voted leave in Northern Ireland came from the Catholic and Protestant communities and came from unionist and nationalist backgrounds. Um, And if you don't believe that, then let me pose a question back to you. you, Is anyone seriously suggesting that every single unionist in Northern Ireland voted to uh, leave? Because 45% of the people of Northern Ireland voted to leave and currently All of the Unionist parties combined minus the Alliance Party equals 45%. So either the premise of your question is wrong, which is to say that the Remain vote was a cross-community vote, and if it was, where were the Unionists who voted Remain? And having in mind that the the DUP was the only main party in Northern Ireland that campaigned for Leave, the Ulster Unionists will Remain, Alliance will Remain, SDLP will Remain, and Sinn Féin will Remain. The DUP as the only party got 45% of the vote in the referendum. Now, is anyone seriously suggesting that every one of those 45% were Mm. DUP voters? And if they were, how come we only get 30% of the vote in most elections? So um, let me dispel the myth that the only people who voted to leave were unionists, they weren't. There were many from a Catholic nationalist background who voted uh, to leave as well. So why are we um, a Leave party? Why do we believe in leaving the European Union. Well, we supported David Cameron, the then Prime Minister, in seeking to have reform of the European Union. We made clear that if he was successful, we would support him in in remaining within the EU. But we know now that the EU refused to engage in any significant reform. Um, I'm a member of Parliament. I've been an MP now for 22 years. Uh, In 2019, over half the laws that i deal with in Parliament as a an MP come from originate from the European Union i cannot change those laws Parliament is merely a rubber stamp for EU regulations now therefore how am i representing my constituents in making law because that's my first uh, um, responsibility is to be a lawmaker is to legislate When over half the laws that I legislate on, I I have no say in how they're drawn up. And I'm simply there as a rubber stamp. And I believe that there was a need to reform that. That um, the way that the EU makes its regulations needs to be reformed. Secondly, uh, I believe that the original concept of a common market has moved um, well beyond that to a political project which um, many EU leaders are unashamedly declaring that it is about creating some kind of federal Europe. Um, I don't believe in a federal Europe. I don't believe that is the right way forward. I believe that in time, more nations will come to challenge the political project within the EU because they will not want to lose the accountability that comes with having your own national parliament, people who you elected, who you can vote for, who you can vote out, if you wish, um, who are less and less involved in making the laws of the country and in running the country. So we believe the EU needed to be reformed. Uh, I regret that the EU did not go uh, with uh, David Cameron's request for reform. The result was a referendum. As you rightly pointed out earlier, it was a UK wide referendum. A majority of my constituents voted to leave And in the general election that followed in 2017, I got my highest ever vote in this constituency. This is my sixth term in Parliament. And for the first time, I got almost 60% of the vote. Now, do you suppose that people were sending me to Westminster to overturn the referendum result? I don't think so. Were people voting for me to go to Westminster to reject the mandate I'd been given by the people of Lagan Valley? I don't think so. Of course, we recognise that a majority in Northern Ireland voted to remain, we respect that. But as you rightly point out, this was a UK-wide vote. We campaigned for Brexit and we want to deliver Brexit, but we want to deliver it in a way that protects Northern Ireland's position, that prevents a hard border on the island of Ireland, that protects the institutions of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement uh, and that ensures cooperation between both parts of this island continue. That's what we want to achieve. And in that sense, we have common ground. Where we differ at the moment is that the proposed backstop to accommodate the special arrangements for Northern Ireland, um, we believe, um, needs to change because it is indefinite in nature and therefore it doesn't provide in the same way for the evolution of those relationships. Um, It it ties them down, if if you like. It, It ties them in. So... I think that um, we believe that the concerns, unionist concerns around the backstop need to be addressed. And it's not just a DUP requirement. There isn't a single unionist party in Northern Ireland um, that supports the backstop in its current form. So I hope that we can, even at this late stage, get some movement on the backstop, even to introduce some form of a time limit on it so that we can get a withdrawal agreement that the UK Parliament can endorse, and we leave with the deal. That is our preference. We are not working for, nor do we advocate, a no-deal outcome. But I think that's where we're heading, unless we can get some movement from the EU on the backstop.
0: Jeffrey, is it through democracy, do you think, when the people of Scotland and the people of Northern Ireland voted to remain, but yet in all by the mere population of uh,
1: people in England voted to leave?
0: Is that democracy really working?
1: Well it is because if, 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 if you want to change that then you should have had a, a four different referenda. Hmm. One in England, one in Wales, one in Scotland and one in Northern Ireland. Yeah. But we didn't. We had a referendum for the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And um, I didn't hear anyone uh, uh, arguing before the referendum that it should be different. I suppose everyone and, thought
0: it wasn't a problem. Well, <laughs> there you go.
1: Um, and and the essence of true democracy is never take the people for granted. Mm-hmm. Never assume the outcome or the result of anything. Yeah. So, you know, it's it, 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 in retrospect, people can say it should have been done differently, but they should have argued for that at the time. You cannot negate the result of a democratic vote. And, and have in mind that, the turnout in the referendum in the UK was the largest ever democratic exercise in the history of the country. You can't negate that and I would turn the question around is it the essence of democracy to take part in a referendum and when you lose then try to negate the result uh, by saying well we would have preferred it were done differently. I don't think that is a very strong democratic argument. Yeah. Putting yourself in the shoes
0: of the Irish Government, if you can, just for this question, can you understand their insistence on the backstop to maintain an open border, protect livelihoods island-wide and the Good Friday Agreement and
1: in its institutions? Of course I do, but um, creating a new border in the Irish Sea is not the answer to avoiding a hard border on the island of Ireland, because that too would be in contravention of the Good Friday Agreement. At the heart of that agreement is the principle of consent and that says that if there's to be any change to the status of Northern Ireland then it has to be with the consent of people here and that should be of course on a cross-community basis and we don't have that um, and uh, you know it would not be in Northern Ireland's interest to have a new border in the Sea. Why do I say that? Well when you consider that some 70% plus of goods that leave Belfast port are destined for the market in Great Britain and that we sell more goods to Great Britain than the rest of the world combined, including the EU. Why would we want to create a, a, a customs barrier or a trade barrier between Northern Ireland and Great Britain in order to avoid a hard border in the island of Ireland? So economically, that does not make sense. Politically, it, in our opinion, contravenes the essence of the Good Friday Agreement. And uh, in in any event, I think it will will harm relationships because no unionist um, party supports the backstop in its current form, and that can't be good for future relationships. And I do want to see a strengthening of relations between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Um, I don't want a hard border any more than anyone else does. I want us to uh, strengthen the the work that is being done on a north-south basis but i think actually the backstop becomes an inhibitor to that rather than a facilitator for it given
0: that differences do exist between the north and british society jeffrey women's rights same-sex marriage etc what is to be feared by checks taking place at course
1: well it depends on the kind of the checks that take place and on the nature of the regime that surrounds those checks. I'm not necessarily against, for example, on animal health checking animals. We do want to protect our agri-food industry. It's our biggest mm-hmm. um, uh, sector in Northern Ireland, um, and we, we've got traceability. We've 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 got a strong quality yeah. assured um, food production system in Northern Ireland. Yeah. So we want to protect that. So I'm not against checks. What I am against is that we would have to accept the regulations coming from brussels with no say whatsoever in how those regulations are drawn up and that's why i make a distinction between on animal health for example and doing checks in the irc it's it's not so much the checks it's the regulatory regime that surrounds them who draws that up can i just ask you something do
0: our meps not have input into what The European Union
1: rules and regulations have? Well they would if we were in the European Union but your question um, is based on the premise that we've left the European Union and therefore we wouldn't have any MEPs Mm -hmm. Um, so we would have no representation and uh, earlier in this interview I said that one of the reasons we supported Brexit was because of what we believe is the lack of accountability in the EU system. Now. The solution therefore to this problem is not to create even more inaccountability. It is to try and design a system that is pragmatic but does not inhibit the UK's capacity to do free trade deals with the rest of the world and does not tie Northern Ireland, exclusively Northern Ireland, into a regulatory regime, which means we lose out on those free trade deals in the future. So those are the issues we need to address. But that doesn't have to be addressed in the withdrawal agreement. That is about the future relationship. And our difficulty is that the backstop as it's currently um, proposed, inhibits our ability to develop the future relationship because the backstop is indefinite in nature. And um, so we recognize there there are particular arrangements that are relevant to Northern Ireland. We are prepared to be pragmatic about that. But what we're not prepared to do is is to um, end up in a situation where Northern Ireland is separated from Great Britain, and that we're um, tied into the EU regulatory system with no say in how that system uh, is devised. You mentioned there, rightfully
0: so, that Irish meat is considered to be among the highest quality in the world, given the checks and strict regulations it must adhere to. How will we as consumers be protected against cheaper unregulated meat being brought in without the same standards and surely this will have a detrimental effect on our farming
1: community island-wide no well um of course we want to protect the position of our farmers and the prime minister um said uh, uh, that uh, he uh, wants to ensure that our farmers are not disadvantaged as a result of brexit um I heard Jeremy Corbyn uh, recently talking about higher food prices, and yet the reality is that we're likely to see a reduction in food prices over time because of Brexit, because of the UK's ability to, to negotiate new trade deals. But, but will that not be the by
0: negotiating new trade deals with, we'll just say Argentina or wherever, to bring in cheaper meat? Will this cheaper meat have the same stringent checks? And, and by bringing in super meat, will that not have a detrimental effect on the farmers
1: in your area and throughout the north? Well, with respect, the EU has just signed a massive trade agreement with a certain country in South America to import a lot of beef into the European Union. So the idea that staying in the European Union protects our farmers and leaving doesn't I have to challenge. But will the EU's trade deal that you're only after alluding to it
0: will come the, the beef that will be brought in will have to adhere to the EU's well, checks. And, and, standards. and I would
1: expect that the UK will take steps to ensure that the the quality of food we're bringing into our country meets the standards of our country. The difference is this that we will be we the UK will will now be in a position to set its own standards. Uh, it will not have to accept the EU's standards and in many cases those standards may even be higher in the European Union. Just for example um, if you take for a moment things like climate change. Let me give you one practical example of how being on the EU impacts on us. Um, the, the UK is one of the, the international leaders in tackling climate change and yet the EU has introduced an additional tax on renewable energy. So if you want to have um, a renewable energy farm using solar power you will now be charged 30% VAT now the UK fought that in court because we recognize this is a huge disincentive to the renewable energy sector the court ruled the European Court ruled that the EU uh, that we must we must we're compelled to implement 30% VAT on renewable energy schemes because the EU has demanded it now that is going to mean less renewable energy in the UK, contravening our stated objective of tackling climate change and developing more renewable energy sources. So in outside of the um, European Union, we'll be able to do more to tackle climate change. Food is a big part of that. Um, and therefore the way that we pr- produce food Um, And the type of food we produce and the quality of the food is really important. So I think that it would be consistent with the UK's stated policies on food, on climate change, um, etc. That we would, of course, want to protect our farmers because of the farming methods used here, because of the quality of the food that we produce. That is consistent with the wider uh, UK policy. Okay. Moving on slightly, Geoffrey,
0: if you don't mind, in accepting that it is quite legitimate to talk about strengthening the union and outlining the benefits of the union, would you also accept that the same is also true regarding Irish unity and the potential
1: benefits that it may bring to us all? Of course. uh, I'm a Democrat and... At the end of the day, um, provided people do so by peaceful means alone, I have no difficulty with nationalist parties um, putting forward the case for a united Ireland. Indeed, um, I have to say that so far I haven't heard any of them put forward a coherent economic case for a united Ireland, none of them. And, um, and, and I believe, uh, as a unionist, I believe passionately that Northern Ireland is better off within the United Kingdom. Uh, I do not see possibly how the Irish Republic could afford to subsidize our public services in Northern Ireland to the same extent as the UK does. And when people talk to me about a United Ireland and the benefits of the United Ireland, and when I point out that they would have to pay for some of their healthcare in a United Ireland, they very quickly retreat from that argument. Um, So, look, I believe the case for the union is strong. I believe we need to be more effective as unionists in putting that case. I was just
0: going to ask you, because you're about to answer it anyway, what are the major benefits of remaining within the
1: union? Well, I believe the United Kingdom, um, first of all, is more capable of accommodating our diverse traditions in Northern Ireland. Um, Because the United Kingdom is a multicultural, multi-ethnic, Uh, society. Uh, You can be Scottish and British, you can be Welsh and British and you can be Irish and British. In fact I had um, an email um, just uh, yesterday from a resident of the Irish Republic who declared that he was proud um, to have both British and Irish ancestry, was proud to be associated with both traditions and felt we should do more to celebrate that diversity Um, and I agree with him. Um, In a United Ireland, unionists do not believe that that our sense of Britishness can be accommodated uh, in the same way. And you see that. I mean, when when I um, hear Sinn Féin, for example, talking about their vision of a United Ireland, I don't see a place for my unionism in it. I don't see a place for my Britishness in it. I think that their form of unification is a very exclusively Irish approach. The Good Friday Agreement, however, I think creates a framework within which we can begin to address some of these issues, Um, because the Good Friday Agreement says that you can, as a citizen of Northern Ireland, be both British and Irish, and I think we need to more fully explore what that means in the context of Northern Ireland, and part of the discussion we're having at the moment is how do you, for example, accommodate the Irish language, but do it in a way that it can be utilised by those who want to speak it and use it, and it's not imposed on those who don't. And I think that's always the balance. One of the the things that I've learned in my political journey is that I may feel strongly about my sense of Britishness. I may be proud of my British identity, but I can't impose it on someone else. And in fact, where I live in County Down, in rural County Down, my next door neighbour, who are a lovely family, Um, They carry Irish passports and they regard themselves as Irish. But when I talk to them, they're quite happy to be part of the United Kingdom, provided that that sense of Irishness is accommodated within Mm -hmm. the Northern Ireland context. But I don't see the reciprocal um, side of that when people talk about a united Ireland. I don't see how, and the experience of the Irish Republic in the past would suggest that the Britishness side of things has been suppressed. I was encouraged by what the Taoiseach said recently, where he talked about you know you'd have to look at a new state and a new yeah. constitution. Um, you know that's an idea that they may the Tishuk and others may wish to develop. But I was born. Let me put it to you in its most basic form, if I may. I was born a British citizen. I see it as my birthright. Um, my family has been here for over 300 years. So I don't see why I have to give up my Britishness.
0: Yeah,
1: And, uh, and that's something I hold dear. It's something my family holds dear. And I have not heard from any credible nationalist politician any coherent argument as to how I could maintain my Britishness and my sense of Britishness in their idea, in their concept of a new Ireland. And... Um, but... I think in terms of the benefits of the union, it's not just about our sense of identity. It's not just that the UK, I believe, can accommodate the diversity of identities and traditions in Northern Ireland. But I think economically, Northern Ireland is much better off part of the United Kingdom. We're part of a national health service and perfect as it is, is one of the best health services in the world. It needs more funding for sure, but it is free at the point of entry and that makes a huge difference to society. We have a strong welfare system, we have a strong education system here um, and economically Northern Ireland is heavily reliant on being part of the UK. Now we have 60 million citizens in the United Kingdom helping to fund the support of our public services. Translate that into an economy in the Republic where you have maybe 5-6 million people supporting the same level of subvention. And I just don't see how the economic argument adds up that we would be better off in a United Ireland economically. The figures don't support that. The economic realities don't support that. And I believe strongly that we're better off financially and economically within the United Kingdom. What would you
0: say, Geoffrey, in response to data that proves that the North is consistently one of the UK's poorest regions and that the NHS is a dying shadow of its original entity?
1: Well, um, if I can start with the NHS, I, I, I don't accept that. And and as I talk to my constituents, the, the experience of most of my constituents is that the NHS works for them. The problem at the moment is not necessarily, and look, it's not perfect. No, no one suggests that it is. Uh, I don't think the issue though is the question of the quality of care. It's the time that people are having to wait access that care and treatment. And that's what we need to address. Um, in relation to um, the, 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 the position of Northern Ireland and in uh, comparing it with other regions of the UK, I would simply say this to you. If any other region of the UK had come through the 30 years of the troubles that we had, when our economy was shot and bombed to pieces, when no one um, apart from a few wanted to invest in Northern Ireland, where we couldn't get create jobs, where we had uh, unemployment at times reaching up to towards 20% and beyond. Um, It takes a long time to recover from that. When you consider that our infrastructure, the infrastructure that's essential to building a strong economy, was not invested in for years because we had to build fortified police stations. We had to repair numerous city, town and village centres because of the bombings. We had to compensate people for their loss. The money wasn't there to invest in our public services, to invest in our infrastructure, so we are lagging away behind. That was one of the core arguments we used in our discussions with the government about getting an extra billion pounds for Northern Ireland. It was to try and help us to catch up with that lag in infrastructure development, with that lag in investment in our public services. So I think in fairness, we cannot ignore the historical context. If the southeast of England or the Midlands or Scotland or Wales had suffered the 30 years of economic deprivation that we did as a result of the violence and that our um, towns, villages and, 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 and uh, uh, city centres were blasted to pieces, um, business people were murdered, businesses had to close because they were bombed. I think many of those regions would be in a similar position to us, but we're recovering. We've now got the lowest unemployment we've had for many years. We're attracting new investment. Um, Northern Ireland's economy is slowly but surely beginning to turn around. We need more of that. We have a long way still to go. But I think comparisons with other regions of the UK are unfair because of where we've come from. But I'm more interested in looking at where we're going to and where we're going to, in my opinion, is a better place with a stronger more stable economy and a more prosperous Northern Ireland and what we're trying to do is put in place the framework the base upon which we can build that stronger economy
0: okay do you not think that Unionist Jeffrey will be more powerful and more embraced in the DAL than in Westminster um, for example we have seen people like Ian Marshall embraced Ian said and I quote there are Nationalists and Republicans here, and I have had no threat to my sense of unionism.
1: Yeah, but um, Ian says that, and uh, he uh, if we follow through the logic of Ian's argument, we end the union. So how can you possibly argue that it is no threat to your unionism to end the union? I'm sorry, Ian, but you're not going to convince me, or I suspect many other unionists, um, that by unionism leaving Westminster, and removing itself from the political institutions of the United Kingdom and joining the political institutions of the Irish Republic, that that's not a threat to our unionism. I think you need to consider what being a unionist actually means, Ian. Being a unionist means that you support our participation in the political institutions of the United Kingdom. And I don't subscribe to Ian's negative view. I've been 22 years a member of Parliament. I've never found it difficult to argue Northern Ireland's case at Westminster. We don't always get what we want. Does anyone seriously suggest we would always get what we want in an Irish parliament? Um, I think if you visit other counties in Ireland and you ask them, do you always get what you want from your government and parliament? I think the answer to that would be no. So, you know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side of the fence. Do you know Ian, may I ask, Trevor? I don't know Ian personally, uh, and I have no... Um, uh, You know, I have no criticism of Ian wanting to sit in the Irish Senate if that's what he wants to do, but um, I will criticise his approach, which says that unionists withdrawing from the political institutions of the United Kingdom and becoming part of uh, the institutions, political institutions in Ireland doesn't threaten our unionism. Well, I'm sorry, I will challenge that strongly. So you don't see a case that you
0: and I will be sitting here in 15 or 20 years' time and I'll be introducing you as the TD for Lagan Valley, no? I
1: I, I, I don't see that, no. And um, uh, I think that Northern Ireland will continue to be part of the United Kingdom um, for the foreseeable future. But I do agree that unionists need to be more um, proactive in presenting the real benefits of the union. I think at times all of us, on all sides, we get too bogged down in um, the insular nature of politics in Northern Ireland. And um, I think that uh, uh, I'm quite happy to extol the virtues and the benefits of remaining part of the UK. But I will say this, and I think this is very important. The notion that these two things are mutually exclusive is wrong. There is no reason why we cannot continue to be part of the UK but also strengthen our relationship with the Irish Republic. The Good Friday Belfast Agreement makes provision for um, institutions that reflect the three sets of relationships. One of those of course is the internal relationship, and that's been a bit of a bumpy ride the last few years. And I hope the sooner we can get Stormont back up and running, the better because power sharing is the way forward and people working together Political leaders working together I think sets the right tone and creates the right example for all of our society. But there is the North-South relationship, there's the North-South Ministerial Council. Just think of the difference it would have made for example on Brexit if we'd had um, both Stormont and the North-South Ministerial Council fully operating. Belfast could have been talking to Dublin. I think we could have come up with practical arrangements that both sides could support. To deal with things like the issues like the Irish border. The fact that those institutions have not been functioning these last two and a half crucial years, I think has been a deficit. So let's learn from this. The other thing I would say to those who espouse a united Ireland is this. Um, There's been a lot of criticism from some of those quarters about Brexit and the lack of preparation before the referendum and since the referendum. People they argue, did not know what they were voting for. Well, let me put this challenge back. If people want to debate about a United Ireland and eventually want to have some kind of a border poll or referendum, then they need to start thinking about what it looks like, what it means, and explaining that. Because I think people expect that now. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, And in relation to where we are at the moment, I think there is more we can do with the institutions we have already to promote better relations on this island, to promote um, a closer cooperation between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. You see, I don't think Brexit is an impediment to progressing that cooperation. In fact, it can be an opportunity because the need to do it is greater now because of Brexit than even it was before. So let's seize that opportunity. Let's get the political institution back up and running. And let's see what we can do in the North-South Ministerial Council to progress cooperation between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. Because you know, if we can't work the institutions we have already, if we can't come up with um, better cooperation at the moment, how on earth do we expect to improve relations in the context of some kind of new Ireland if we can't even work what we have now? And my challenge to Sinn Féin is this, in particular. And I single them out because of course they, um, for the time being, don't take their seats at Westminster and at the moment don't want Stormont um, until certain demands that they have are met. And I would ask them this simple question. The loss of the political institutions over the last two and a half years, I believe, have been a huge deficit for all of us. And surely therefore it is imperative to get those institutions restored. And within the context of those institutions, then let's look at how we can enhance relationships instead of chasing after moonbeams uh, in terms of arguing that we must now have a border poll. A border poll will simply polarize opinion in Northern Ireland. And the T-shirt has made that clear. He doesn't support having a border poll uh, in the context of Brexit. Uh, it will polarise opinion. It will enhance divisions, and it will actually, I think, um, put off the day when you can improve relations between Northern Ireland and the Republic.
0: So, just to go back on something that like you said in your last answer, there, Jeffrey, am I right in thinking that um, you would encourage pro-unity voices to come up with what they would deem to be a feasible plan, and at least attempt to present that to you and your community? for at least you to look at
1: and then dismiss or agree or what? Well, whether I would encourage it or not, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a unionist at the yeah. end of the day and I, I will actually encourage unionists to be putting forward their arguments. Yeah, I will actually encourage unionists to be putting forward their arguments and, and to present, be presenting the case for the union. But what I am saying and my challenge to those who espouse, whether it's a United Ireland or a New Ireland, yeah. is... You know let's get beyond the rhetoric mm-hmm. if you have ideas then you are entitled to put those ideas on the uh, you know forward into the public domain but I want to be clear and I want to be fair and yes. I want to be honest with people uh-huh. I don't believe either I or the people that I represent as Unionists are going to be persuaded uh, of the virtues of a United Ireland anytime soon but in a democracy People have the right to put forward their views and their arguments. And if they're doing that by peaceful means, then let's hear what they have to say. It's We're nearly
0: 49 minutes into this um, interview and we really appreciate all the time that you've given us already today. If I could push you on one last question before um, I let you go. What would your biggest fears and concerns and possibly of your communities be in a new Ireland? How can pro-unity voices help to alleviate these fears? Maybe you can help them in their
1: endeavour here. Well, first of all, it really depends a lot on what you mean by a new Ireland. You see, a new yeah. Ireland might mean that Northern Ireland continues to be part of the United Kingdom. but has Well, a- well, well sorry, I'll clarify that. No, that there would be a British withdrawal
0: and it would be well, a 32-county. Now, I accept you don't want that and yeah. we'll do everything in your power that that won't happen. Well, but... On this little journey that you'll go okay. with me kindly
1: on, what would your biggest fears and concerns be? Well, well let me be kind by starting <laughs> with challenging the notion that British withdrawal is what we're talking about. You see, I'm British. My wife is British, my children are British, and we've been British for generations. And when I hear people stand up and talk about getting the Brits out or British withdrawal, that means me. That means me, and the first piece of advice I would have for those who espouse either a New Ireland or a United Ireland is, think about the language you're using. Mm -hmm. Think about what that means to the people you're trying to persuade. Mm -hmm. Because you see, we had 30 years of violence and we had, thankfully, a minority who believed that armed struggle, as they called it, guns and bombs, shooting and bombing was the way to achieve a United Ireland. Not persuasion, but using violence, terror. And it didn't work. In fact, I would say that what it did was made Unionists even more determined, more determined to protect their sense of Britishness and their place within the United Kingdom. Persuading us by by talking about Brits out or British withdrawal doesn't work either. Because what we see that is meaning Britishness will not have a place in a new Ireland. Therefore, will you have a place in a new Ireland? That's our question. So the loss of your British identity would be key? Well, uh, absolutely. Um, You cannot argue on the one hand, as nationalists do at the moment, that whilst Northern Ireland remains part of the United Kingdom, the Irish identity should be accommodated, protected and promoted and then say, but in the event of a United Ireland, Britishness will not be accommodated, uh, will not be um, encouraged or promoted. And that's wrong. That's just plain wrong. Uh, that is a huge contradiction at the heart, of course, of, of some who espouse Irish, um, a United Ireland, that they want, they are not prepared to give to, to Unionists what they want for themselves within the United Kingdom. Yeah. So. Um, You know, that is one thing. Nevertheless, I believe, having said that, I believe that it will be very difficult uh, in a unitary state, uh, if that is what the outcome is of a United Ireland, uh, to accommodate adequately my sense of Britishness. And uh, because the embodiment of my sense of Britishness is that we are part of the United Kingdom. And the United Kingdom is not just one unitary state. It is made up of different countries Mm -hmm. coming together to become and form the United Kingdom. And of course, those countries have the right to leave the United Kingdom if they so wish. And we've had already a referendum in Scotland on that issue. So um, I still argue very strongly that being in the UK accommodates our diversity and our different sense of identity and tradition, and I am I think, highly dubious that you can do that to nearly the same extent in a united Ireland. But um, uh, in terms of what people need to do, I think they they do need to address those kind of issues. But they also, crucially, need to address the economic issues, because I think that will be a very important point for many people in Northern Ireland. Will I be better off in a United Ireland? That's what matters to people most. Yeah. Well, in the end, you know, it, it was John Hume who said you can't eat a flag. Mm-hmm. And that's true. <laughs> um, identity is important to people here. A sense of their belonging is important. But also, you know, that they can send their kids to good schools, that they have access to a health service that uh, uh, can help them when they, when they, they need um, care and treatment and support for their health and well-being. And, and that economically, uh, we, we know that we're protected by being part of a wider body um, that, that uh, safeguards us when times are tough. And that the United Kingdom does that for us. I don't see at the moment any coherent argument that, that demonstrates to me as a unionist that a United Ireland could also do that for us.
0: Last question, I promise you. Your current party leader, Arlene Foster, once said that in the event of United Ireland, she would leave. Uh, Would
1: you stay? Um <clears throat> I was born in this place. I love Northern Ireland. I, I love uh, uh, my uh, communities um, that I have the privilege to represent. I'm not going anywhere. Um, and uh, I don't believe it's going to come to that anyway in my lifetime. But, um, you know, my family have been here now for over 300 years and we have no intention of, of going anywhere.
0: What does religion and God mean to you, Jeffrey? Is it
1: important in your life? My faith is very important, but it's a personal thing. Yeah, of course. And um, I believe, you know, uh, that for me, um, coping with a very difficult and challenging world of politics, having a faith for me is very a very important thing. But my faith also influences the way that I treat people. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my attitude in terms of of trying to move this society forward you see in the peace process i think we've we've come a long way and we've made remarkable progress but we haven't yet got to the point of healing and reconciliation mm-hmm. and as someone of the christian faith i believe that that is hugely important for this society that if we're to move on from the dark dark days of the troubles mm-hmm. if this community and society is to be healed then we need to move to the next stage of reconciliation. That's very important for me as a unionist, but but as a citizen of Northern Ireland, and I think dealing with the legacy of our troubled past is difficult, but right now it must be a priority. We must deal with this. Mm -hmm. We've dragged this out now for over 20 years since the agreement, and it's not fair for those who've suffered. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is not fair. A huge, if I may say so, one of the biggest Flaws in the Good Friday Agreement was that it did not adequately deal with this issue. I think that's accepted by everybody. And we pushed it down the road and down the road, and it is now a huge blockage in the way of moving towards healing and reconciliation. So we need, and a priority for me is to get a proper legacy process. It's going to be difficult, Mm -hmm. it's going to be painful, but we need to deal with it so that we can then begin to take the next steps towards reconciliation. And that's not just reconciliation here within Northern Ireland. It's also looking at our other relationships. Yeah. And I think there is reconciliation needed between uh, the two islands. Yeah, I think there are still attitudes that prevail that need to be addressed in terms of the, re- the attitude of some towards the UK. Equally, uh, we, we need to look at reconciliation in the context of our North-South relationships as well. Yeah. That's why I get um, a little dismayed when I hear people talking about a United Ireland. We have a journey that we're on, all of us, everyone, whether we are Catholic, Protestant, or of no faith, whether we are Unionist, Nationalist, or something in between. We're on a journey, and, 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 and the problem is some of us want to be in a TARDIS. We, we don't want to walk the rest of the journey. We want to go from now to the end of the journey, and that doesn't work. And I think what we should concentrate now is on fulfilling the hopes and aspirations that were born out of the peace process, which are far from fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And before we start talking about huge constitutional change, shouldn't we take the next steps in the journey that is in front of us, which includes a healing and reconciliation? If we do that, and if we the result of that is a change in attitudes towards each other, then Let's see where the journey takes us next. I don't believe we can fast forward on that journey. There is a difficult phase of this journey we need to walk through, and let's get on with doing that. Let's have less talk. It doesn't mean people can't debate the issues. It doesn't mean people can't set out their vision for what the end of the journey might look like. But if that becomes a substitute for doing the hard yards, for taking the very difficult steps that we need to take to heal this society first, then we're not going to get to any next stage. And in fact, my fear is that if we don't resolve these issues, there are young people growing up now and I watched them recently in the New Lodge. I watched them in East Belfast. I watched them uh, up in the Bogside. Young people who who have grown up in a Northern Ireland that thankfully has been in a peace process, but are now resorting to violence again. Yeah, That cannot be the mark, that cannot be the medium through which we deal with our problems. We have got to make politics work. That's why I entered politics in the first place, because I recognized there isn't a security solution. We cannot fight each other to the death in Northern Ireland. We have to find a way of living with each other, We have to find a way of accommodating each other. We have to find a way of having a peace that is meaningful for every citizen.
0: Legacy in our past was obviously going to be a question I was going to ask you, but it's a massive subject. You touched on it slightly there, so um, maybe a subject for some other time. We always finish off, Geoffrey, by asking, if you could
1: invite three people to your fictional dinner party, who would they be and why? Well that's a very good question and I I could fill a room probably with people that I would love to have there. I think of some of the people that I've met in the past who are sadly no longer with us. Mm -hmm. Um, People like Nelson Mandela Mm -hmm. uh, for example who I met in South Africa um, when we were in the early days of our peace process and I was inspired by many of the things I heard and saw not only from Nelson Mandela but, but from others like Rolf Mayer who was one of the leading negotiators on the Afrikaans side of the South African peace process. Um, but of course I can't have Nelson Mandela now because he, he has sadly departed. Or oh, they can be alive or dead. This is okay, a, a well fixable... then, then let me start with um, a wonderful lady who I think has has showed such dignity and set an example for our nation that, I, that inspires me and many others, and that's Her Majesty the Queen. I have the privilege of serving on her Privy Council. I've got to see how she operates up close. Mm -hmm. I think her visit to Dublin was absolutely cathartic in terms of redefining uh, Anglo-Irish relations, uh, uh, redefining the relationship between the United Kingdom and the Irish Republic. So I would like to have Her Majesty the Queen, I think, as one of my uh, guests. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, secondly, I would have Nelson Mandela Mm -hmm. because his insights into the journey that he undertook, I think is important for us. Yeah. Because um, unless you've walked in in the shoes
0: mm-hmm.
1: on such a journey, unless you've, you've, you've walked the hard yards, yeah. it's difficult to understand what people have to do. And we in Northern Ireland still, as I've said, have part of our journey to undertake. Mm-hmm. And we can learn from others who've already undertaken that yes, journey. Correct. So I would have, I think, Nelson Mandela as my number two. Number three, um, uh, where do I go? So I have one man and one woman, which very is, uh, which is I think You're uh, thinking carefully because very, I can say very, very very helpful. I'm a great I have a great, huge interest in history and in military history and the first world War and relationships and so on and that, that and, and the way that the first world war she- and that period shaped the history of Ireland mm. um, going forward. So I think I would like to have met someone from that period yeah. who could talk to us about what happened then. So I'm going to go for four and not three. And okay. I'm going to say Edward Carson and Michael Collins.
0: Ah, very good.
1: Um, because I would they both went on a very interesting journey during that period, which shaped the Northern Ireland that we know today. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would like to hear from them about what that journey meant to them, what the events that occurred in that period. So, um, if I may, I think I'd have four people at my... Well, uh, Camera, can you squeeze in five, because I would like to attend that dinner party myself.
0: I think it would be a fascinating one. (laughs) I think it would be a very interesting (laughs) conversation. Very quickly, who's the most famous person you have in your phone
1: book? Wow, that's a very good uh, question. Um, uh, Today, I suppose it would be Boris Johnson. Ah, okay. What makes you happy? Um... Lots of things. Chelsea winning the Premier League from time to time certainly helps. What about Rangers Um, winning
0: the Scottish League? uh, Yeah, uh, that too. It would be nice
1: to see um, uh, another team winning the Scottish Premier League for a change. Just
0: on that, do you think, well, is Stephen Jarrett the right
1: man for the job? I do, yeah. I think he's done a great job at Rangers. Um, by the way I love to I was in uh, uh, at Lord's recently cheering the Ireland cricket team mm-hmm. against England yeah. um, I'm a great supporter of the Irish rugby team I love to see them winning I love to see Ulster winning at rugby I'm big into sport yes um uh, Formula One's another passion of mine. Same as mine so I love to see um Lewis Hamilton winning uh, in the Grand Prix although I have a sneaking admiration I have to say um for uh, Max Verstappen as well. Yeah. Uh, I think he's one um, to look uh, for out for in the future. So sport is something I really yeah. enjoy. And sport's something I enjoy because I find generally in Northern Ireland it's it brings people together. Absolutely. Yes. And it it's a great medium for people enjoying something together. So um, those are the kind of things that make me happy. I'll tell you something that makes me happy right now, not having to get on a plane and travel back and forward to London every week. Um, So during the month of August, it's great to be able... People ask me, where are you going on your holiday? I love to spend the month of August here at home in Northern Ah, Ireland, spending time in my constituency. For example, yesterday I went out and just drove around the place, um, stopping, talking to people, um, just seeing what's happening in the villages and towns that I represent. So uh, th- that makes me happy too. I-, I love being a constituency MP. The final point to that question would be this. The one thing that makes me happiest of all as a politician is when I'm able to do something for someone that, that helps to change their life for the better. Um, and that, that, So the most important thing that I do as a politician is my constituency work, because that's the way I can help to change the lives of individuals and families by helping them at their point of need. And that makes me, it, maybe happy is not the word fulfilled. Yeah. I have a real sense of fulfillment when I'm able to do something for someone that helps make their life better. I,
0: I, I apologize because I keep saying the last question and you can kick me out now if I ask you another one. But have you one place in the island that you go to reflect, that you can feel at peace if you have a big decision
1: to make in life? Somewhere where you can, you know, gather your thoughts. Um, there are lots of places on the island I haven't yet visited and that's one of the things I'm determined to do is to see more of the island as I get older and I'm still able to do so. Um, I'm from the Kingdom of Mourn and, and I love getting down to the Mourns. Um, uh, the, the sea I have found, I grew up beside the sea and the sea is such a calming thing. And I love to go um, for a walk on the beach at Cranfield and down there in Mourne. Okay. Um, it's a very calming experience. You can, you know, you've time to, to think, but I can't always get down. So the place where I can lose myself, where I can switch off from politics or where I can think things through is in my garden, believe it or not. Oh, very good. I wouldn't C- say can, I'm... Can we all go there? I wouldn't say <laughs> that I'm an expert gardener. I'm not but I love just to get out whether it's even just pulling weeds mm-hmm. or pruning something or planting something. Um, I just, I can lose myself for two or three hours in the garden and, and, you know, maybe have the radio on in the background and it's a great way to clear your head and to think. So, um, if I can a walk by the beach in the beach is a, is a great way to do that. But if I can't get away, just being at home in the garden, for me, can do the same thing.
0: Funny, everyone that I ask that question to, without fail, all say nature by the sea, and that seems to do it for us humans. <laughs> Jeffrey Donaldson, thank you very much for giving up your valuable time today to speak to Shared Ireland. I think you've been truthful, open and honest, and you've also been the first DUP member that has agreed to take part in this conversation, so I applaud you for that
1: and um, wish you well in your future journey. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to share um, in what must be a very interesting series of interviews.
0: Thanks for listening, folks. And if you do like what you hear, maybe a retweet and a like would be much appreciated. Take care. (music) Bye-bye.